Breaking Banks Asia is brought to you today by Kamakura Co. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know we don't know. <laughs> when you think of good defense strategies, you try to be aware of all the possibilities, including the unknown unknowns. If your business needs to be certain of the things you think you know, able to get clear answers to the things you don't know, and can quickly discover the important things you didn't even know you didn't know, then you probably need Chris, the Kamakura Risk Information Service. Chris provides real-time intelligence on business conditions across 68 countries, honing from 39,000 probabilities, each with exposures ranging from 30 days to 10 years. Chris is used to manage exposures identify trends, and see opportunities. And Chris is the leading global service to ensure that you know what you need to know and can anticipate and see around the corner to see some of the things you didn't know you didn't know. If you want to know more, send an email to BBA for Breaking Banks Asia at kamakuraco, K-A-M-A-K-U-R-A-C-O dot com. BBA at KamakuraCo.com and learn more about Chris and how Kamakura can help you. FinTech or financial technology is changing everything about the way we bank to the very concept of money itself. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia, the podcast dedicated to exploring how this disruption is affecting the Asia Pacific area. Here is your host, Simon Spencer. So welcome to another episode of Breaking Banks Asia. This week I've got another very special guest, George Lawson, who's the country manager for Alipay, part of Ant Financial and the Alibaba Group. To give some context to Alipay, you really only have to take a look at the numbers around Ant Financial and its parent Alibaba. Ant Financial Services services today 520 million active users in China. 11.11, which is also known as Singles Day, is a Chinese equivalent of Black Friday. It's a shopping day popular on Amazon and other retailers. I say equivalent very, very loosely, as the scale of 11.11, or Singles Day, just dwarfs the size of Black Friday and Cyber Monday put together. Alibaba has a market cap now of 475 billion US dollars. And on 11.11 in last year, it processed just under 18 billion US dollars in one day. This year for Singles Day, it did 7 billion in just the first 30 minutes and went on to process 25 billion US dollars in gross merchant value. The numbers are just staggering. By comparison, Black Friday did about 3 billion US and Cyber Monday a little more than 3.5 billion. Alibaba has seen an increase of over 39% in year-on-year growth. And a key part of this story is the financial services platform within Ant Financial and Alipay. During 11.11 in 2016, Alipay processed over 1 billion transactions in a 24-hour period, and at peak handling transaction volumes reached 120,000 transactions per second. Alipay has evolved from a payments platform and a digital wallet into a lifestyle enabler. In China, users can hail a taxi, book a hotel, buy movie tickets, pay utility bills, make appointments with doctors, or purchase wealth management products directly from within the app. 
For something this big, I felt that this was something I didn't know nearly enough about. So I reached out, and I was really delighted that their country manager, George Lawson, could spare some time to join me in our Melbourne studio for a great fireside chat where we talked Alipay, Alibaba, loyalty, and the future of financial services. So I'm joined this morning by George Lawson, who's the country manager for Alipay, that is uh, part of Ant Financial. So welcome to Breaking Banks, George. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, Alipay, I think um, many people may not have a good understanding of Alipay. So mm-hmm. maybe you could take a moment and just bring us up to speed on what Alipay is. Mm-hmm. So Alipay well, was born as the payment mechanism for the Alibaba group and the platforms that Alibaba has. It kind of helps to picture those kind of assets first. A lot of people would know Alibaba, it's the B2B, B2C payment methods in China and outside of China as well. So any particular combination of those. And Alipay was designed as an escrow service that sat in that because a a buyer in the south of China didn't necessarily trust a seller in the north of China and vice versa. So it was essentially an escrow service that made sure the goods were delivered before the money was actually paid out to the purchaser. As a business, it's primarily focused on Chinese tourists coming out to Australia or or travelling around Asia. Uh, And so for that, it's a forex play predominantly, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. So if I go in a little bit more detail, we've got 520 million uh, people using the application, so it's a wallet, but it's broader than just actually payments. 520 million? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so so it's funny. Last time I was up there, the guys were talking about how they were going to update the app and they were having a lot of sleepless nights about how do you update an app that's going out to 520 million people and make sure everything goes smoothly. But yeah, we've got 520 million customers, but it's actually known as a lifestyle app. So it does payments, but it also does a lot of other things. So I can pay my utility bills and pay my, my phone bill. I can pay my electricity bill. I can order a cab. I can actually buy food. Last time I was up in China, I used it to hire a bike. So they had a QR code at the back of the bike. I just scanned that. It unlocked it. I rode it to where I wanted to go, hopped off it, rescanned it, and it closed it off at that point in time. So all of these functions actually sit within Alipay. And it's become a kind of a must-have, must-use tool for Chinese anywhere that you want to have payments involved, you're integrating into the, um, the Alipay app. The other thing that we actually do quite well is we've got a loyalty platform that sits on this as well. So businesses actually go and provide coupons, essentially, so they can have promotions for their stores and advertising for their stores. And then um, a customer would see those promotions and actually add them to the wallet, and then they would go into store and redeem them. That is actually probably um, the more powerful element of Alipay because that's where you can actually essentially understand customers really well and drive them into particular stores. So, for example, if I'm a high-end retailer, we would target a promotion at our platinum or our diamond customers, whereas if it's something that's not quite as class-specific in terms of the the retailer, you could have it uh, sent out to all of our our users. A couple of benefits of that, uh, when Chinese visitors come to market, We actually know they're in market because around 50% of them open their app. So there's about 1.5 million visitors due next year, 50% of them open their app. We can see where they actually are and then we can say, hey, here's some promotions of merchants nearby and actually drive the customer into the merchant to actually transact. So it's new business, it's incremental revenue to businesses in Australia. So the data analytics you're getting must be phenomenally valuable in terms of identifying what people are interested in, what sort of offers to potentially make them, what their sort of their, their loyalty and, and their value is and their life cycle is. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, there's no doubt because whenever anyone interacts on our ecosystem at all, we actually have a clear understanding of what they're doing. So we've got our marketplaces area, which I kind of talked about briefly before. We've got Ant Financial, so the payments area, which is Alipay sits in that. But we've also got a services area, which has things like video streaming, music streaming, YouTube equivalents, uh, mapping capabilities. And whenever anyone's interacting on that, we actually know that as well. So at that point, you can start connecting the payment activity with the, the service activity, and then you end up with a very granular view of what the customer's interested in, and then you can kind of influence uh, or, or send appropriate offers to them around those behaviours. So it's a much broader definition of what financial services is than the traditional sort of pillars of checking and savings and mortgages and so forth. You're very much reaching out into the lifestyle experiences that, that your customers are having, and how do you find ways to then enable them? You're centering around payments, but obviously there's so many adjacencies that you're helping facilitate, um, you know, ticketing and you know, retail and various others. So I think it's a really interesting sort of template for what's happening in financial services where the whole market is broadening a little bit. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I mean, payments is the glue. There's no doubt about that. But all the features that hang around it, that's really the value of, of Alipay. Mm-hmm. You know, we're working with Christchurch Airport, for example. Um, if I just talk a, a little bit about that, they're actually branding the South Island of New Zealand. So their whole idea is to say, let's go to all of the SMEs in New Zealand that would be subscale on their own on our digital platforms, but underneath the South Island branding, they actually get scale. And so they're looking at using our assets to essentially badge or brand these businesses. And some of those assets are a Fliggy, for example, which yeah. is our flight booking engine. Um, so we know when people are coming to New Zealand or, or Australia and we can start sending them things that they should consider doing when they're in country. So it could be must shop, must travel, etc. And this is where Christchurch Airport is really leading the thinking around this sort of stuff. But their end kind of objective is to say, hey, we know that you bought honey online when you're in Hangzhou. Now you're in uh, New Zealand. There's two honey shops nearby. Come and buy the Manuka honey. Come and buy the Manuka the honey. authentic Manuka honey. Correct. Yeah, correct. So, so very much this is about creating experiences and a lot of organisations and, and banks in particular have talked about, you know, they want to be part of an ecosystem or build an ecosystem. You guys are uh, very much um, living that, that sort of strategy where you're building a, a rich ecosystem of partners and inventory of other experiences around the payment platform. Yeah, correct. Well, I mean, the other day I was up at the annual party and we're, I think, the 21st biggest economy in the world now. So it's a big organisation, but it's all designed to actually enable kind of small business and business to actually um, be far more effective and to put customers in contact with business. From my, my role in Australia is to enable uh, businesses to interact more effectively with Chinese customers when they're in market. So the idea is to have the 1.5 million customers coming down, most of them are using Alipay, to be able to transact in-store easily and effectively. I saw that you've got a projection where you think the numbers are going to go from sort of 1.5 up to about 3.3 over the next sort of few years. So, yeah, these are substantial volumes of Chinese coming to Australia or into the, into this region. Um, and obviously there's building rich experiences and, and you're tethering them to a, a broader ecosystem of partners and suppliers and, and affiliated businesses. Do you see this model extending beyond China? So, you know, do you see sort of Australians or New Zealanders starting to use a product like Alipay, a local version of it perhaps? Oh, our focus at the moment is definitely payments and, and the marketing services, so it's enabling the Chinese in market. Mm. Um, there have been other markets where we have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Paytm in India is a, a good example of that. 
and these tend to be developing markets. But our focus is very much on, yep. on the payments and marketing side. But it's, a, it's certainly a very interesting example for others to look at of where you're creating a, a capability, but then you're building this suite of other capabilities around it. Now, presumably, you've, you've built um, open APIs in your platform and you must be looking at the, the movement around open banking uh, very, as a very interesting development. You know, that's been in the back of my mind that we should definitely, I should definitely start to talk about that because when I was at Visa, I was starting to look at open APIs and, and how they were opening up their platform. I just haven't had time to kind of delve into that given my current focus in market from, a, um, from an Alipay perspective. Um, but what I would say, though, is that a lot of the services that you were referring to before are kind of very specific to our China implementations and our China platforms. So my bank, for example is providing lending to small businesses. It's almost like factoring. So we can see the business that they're actually doing and we can actually say, look, in the lead up to 11.11, we think your, your volume's gonna go up. Um, you might have a bit of a cash flow issue around that. So would you like a loan? So it's all very specific mm. to the Alibaba ecosystem. So it's not something that you can just cut and replace into no. another location. The data that you referred to before has been, been built up over a long period of time. Um, and again, that's very specific to those sort of environments. But it is a very powerful way to extend your relationship to your, your customers. For as, as they travel, they're still tethered to your ecosystem, to mm -hmm. your partners that you're putting in front of them, to the recommendations you're making. They're leveraging your platform for the foreign exchange. And also you're being able to maintain that sort of customer-centric loyalty to your brand, regardless of where they are in the world. Yeah, and that's the sole focus of the international strategy oh. is to essentially enable it so that Chinese can use a payment method that's familiar to them in China. China when they go overseas, but not only that, to take full advantage of the capabilities that the app provides to enable small businesses and businesses of any size, actually, to be able to interact more effectively with these Chinese customers. That's the sole focus of it. So what do you think the next 12 months holds? Uh, from my perspective, it's definitely rolling out more, more acceptance locations. We're working with the major banks locally. Uh, we're also working with the terminal vendors, so Verifone, Ingenico, SmartPay, Quest, to enable our um, QR codes to be presented on their terminals. And we're working with POS system providers as well. So how can we actually integrate into the electronic cash register so that Alipay can be a tender type on that? So there's a lot of players in the ecosystem that we're actually working with, and we're really excited about the opportunities that are actually in front of us. I think one of the things that continues to be reaffirmed to me is that when I talk to merchants about this, they really get it. They understand what it is we're doing and how it can actually bring new business to. And so on that basis, there's very, very strong merchant demand. And we're actually seeing that kind of flow through the rest of the ecosystem as well. Your customers are very loyal. I bumped into a Chinese tourist not so long ago and yeah, he was passionate about showing me Alipay and passionate about encouraging me to get merchants to sign up to use Alipay. Mm. And while this is obviously an anecdotal example, I sense there's a high degree of advocacy for your brand by, by the, your, the Chinese nationals using it. Yeah, well, it, it's an incredibly important part of their daily life, not just from a financial perspective, but from a lifestyle perspective. Um, and so the Chinese, it's an incredibly important tool for them, for them managing their finances and for them actually being able to just interact. So it's not surprising that you find that level of advocacy here. I was surprised when I first saw it 
And I was surprised from a couple of uh, dimensions, to be frank. One, just how much stuff there is on it and how it's actually presented. But equally, um, you're right, the, the passion that the Chinese have in terms of using it and the importance that they place on it. You mentioned New Zealand uh, and Christchurch Airport earlier. Um, I wanted to tease that out a little bit. So how did that come together? About when I started, week two, essentially, I ended up in China uh, with for an MOU signing between Alibaba, Alipay and Christchurch Airport. Um, so a lot of the work had been done before I got there, but then since then a lot of the work's actually landed with Alipay. But um, Ken and Justin from uh, Christchurch Airport, they really get it that what they're trying to do is enable a great experience for Chinese people when they're actually coming through the airport. So they've got support areas where you can go where things are in Chinese. But more broadly, they're actually saying if we can actually help the economy of the South Island of New Zealand, if we can actually get that moving and make that more attractive for Chinese consumers to actually come and be able to transact easily, then that's actually going to benefit Christchurch. It's incredibly sophisticated thinking for, for an airport yep. that's job is to land planes and those sorts of infrastructure capabilities. Uh, to be thinking in financial services terms, and, and you know, that's that's really yeah. impressive. No, it's it's visionary, and I mean, you know, they can talk more about it. But the stuff they've kind of talked about openly is that they've gone around to regional tourist areas, each little area, and had town hall meetings. And, uh, and the response has been overwhelming. A lot of the merchants are sitting there saying, is there a trick to this? Um, and, you know, the answer is no. Essentially, they're enabling them to be able to transact and do business far more easily with the Chinese when they're in market. And they understand that the knock-on effect of that to the South Island of New Zealand and the New Zealand economy in general is significant. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about the work they're actually doing there. So basically, they're creating the channel for you, which is you know, which is brilliant. Um, I, <laughs> that helps. Yeah, it, no, definitely. It, it definitely helps. And yeah. that's, and, you know, if you've got a great product, that's sort of the, the best way to work. Before Alipay, how were they doing it? You well, so it'd be you know other payment methods or cash, basically Visa, Mastercard, China Union Pay, or cash. So. But each would be a, your ability to use the data to help drive them to a, an experience or create that sort of ecosystem didn't really exist before as well. Oh, well, I would say that that's the value that we add. So we actually have the, the online assets where people are actually interacting already so we know the sorts of things that they're actually buying um, through to what I'm trying to develop now, which is the offline, so the in-store payments um, to essentially close the loop. But when you have the marketing side on, on top of that as well and we can actually target an individual user with a particular offer that's relevant to them based on uh, things that we've worked yeah. out with the merchant, there's no one else that can that, actually provide that. So that's extending well beyond the sort of Visa MasterCard sort of model. It, it is, yeah. That That's our real strength and that's part of the reason why consumers and, um, and merchants are, are really excited about what we've actually got. Cool. When I talk to merchants, they get it. They just say, look, this is kind of what we're looking for is something that can bring incremental business into my store and incremental customers. And we've proven that, that when we actually do run promotions, you actually do get behavioural change from consumers. Do you see other banks you know, outside of China trying to emulate some of those same models? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, it, it would make sense to do that. I think one of the things about Alipay is that we can essentially cut across the entire market. So each merchant is a great opportunity um, mm. for us. Whereas I think some of the banks, if I'm a CBA merchant, you know, how do I get a, a proposition across the entire market? And that, that's a nut that I think that they're still working on mm. trying to crack. So what are the main sort of commercial focuses you've got at the moment? So there are a couple of areas where we know Chinese are opening Alipay a lot in markets. So it's key residential areas where there's a high 
basis of Chinese people living in high-end retail, so places like Chadstone Mall, Westfield Malls, those sorts of places. Universities, so around the main universities, there's a lot of students opening their applications. Key tourist locations in Sydney, that would be Harbour Bridge, Opera House, uh, fish markets, those sorts of places. The Chinatown locations and also airports. So these are the ones that we're very heavily focused on. What we see is the, the number of people who are actually, we, we've got kind of essentially heat maps that show how many people have opened up their application in a particular area. So this is making it very compelling for merchants in that area to actually start to accept Alipay. And that, that also called, comes into a sort of a, a critical mass argument. Once you get enough critical mass, then you get to a point where all the rest of the merchants sign up. And they want to be part of that story. Well, yeah, and, and then it's even more self-reinforcing in terms of the customer then as well, because if you actually have more merchants, then more customers come into it and that encourages it again. So, yeah, it's, there's definitely a self-reinforcing upward yeah. loop. So Alipay is part of uh, Ant Financial. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about Ant Financial? Yeah, sure. So it's the financing part of the business. We're a subsidiary part of that, but there are a number of services that they actually offer. Uh, so one is Alipay. That's the that's the key one. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, our cloud infrastructure supports Alipay and uh, did 120,000 transactions per second for 11.11 last year at the peak. So the processing power 120,000 transactions per second. Yeah, actually proven, yeah. So it's pretty capable infrastructure in terms of supporting that number of uh, transactions. It just boggles the mind. And, and yeah. we've got 11.11 coming up. It'll be interesting to see how that actually goes this year and if we can knock that number off or not. So we've definitely got that. We've got our MyBank capability, which is essentially providing loans or microloans to small businesses that operate on the Alibaba platform. Here again, we have very, very deep understanding of their, their business because we see what they're actually selling and, and how, and oftentimes too, when they're actually paying their bills. Um, so that gives us a very, very strong level of granularity around what their business actually looks like and what the risk of that is. So then we can actually provide a loan to them. It takes apparently three minutes to fill it out, one second to decide it and zero human intervention. And the default rates are incredibly low because of the rich information that we've actually got. And what scale of loans are we talking about here? Uh, I think it's anything up to 100,000 yeah. RMB. So, yeah, I'm yeah. not 100%, but it's, it's, a, it's a size it's of pretty loan, substantial. Yeah. And it can be thought of in terms of factoring as well. So here's my receivables. So what would be a loan that would fit along that line? The other area that we have is um, our consumer area. And in there, we've got our Sesame Credit Score which is further than the, the credit scores that exist today because we actually look at all of the, the transactions that you have from a payments perspective when you're paying your utility bills. We can see salary come in and things like that. So there's a, there's a whole lot more information that we've actually got going into that credit score. And that is then used to provide a line of credit to these customers, uh, which is good news for merchants because when they go into these merchants, they actually spend more money than without the um, the credit provided. And we've actually got documented proof of that increase. It's up to 60% uh, increase in spending power. Uh, but the other way it's used, which is quite interesting, is it, it sort of solves the prepayment risk in China. So if you go into some hotels, not all of them, but some, uh, you know how an Australian experience would be that they take $1,000 out of your account uh, on the basis that you're staying there two nights. Uh, in, in China, they just use the Sesame credit score as a, a metric to say that you're actually good for the money and so you don't have to do this prepayment. So they've actually taken the idea of, of credit and that credit score to solve prepayment risk 
uh, likewise in um, in uh, higher cars. So anywhere where there's this prepayment risk, you just use the, the score. And the merchant would simply call out using an API to actually get uh, an indication of the credit score and then use that to make their own decision at whatever threshold they want want to have it at. So we can get very, very granular about individuals that are either unbanked or underbanked uh, and or have very low transaction volume just based on what we're seeing on our platform. And that then gives us a capability that's very, very strong in market. That's a really interesting capability that I imagine would be of interest to sort of people in the so-called gig economy or freelancers, where their you know their, their cash flow bounces up and down depending on on the on the freelance work or the work they're doing. And I've seen a number of banks start to look at this space of sort of uh, cash flow averaging or recognizing you know sort of what the average amount of money in your bank account over a three month period is, and then giving you a grieve overdraft in it. But it's great to see these sorts of services actually being deployed and, and taken live. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, when I first saw that, I was going like far out. That just makes sense. Like, why yeah. why wouldn't you yeah. offer that to solve a problem that exists where you you know the credit worthiness of this person? There's credit risk at the hotel. Did I drink the mini bar out and and leave without kind of declaring it? So so these sorts of things, it's, you know, it's a very strong indicator that gives the the hotel a lot of comfort around the fact that they are actually going to get paid. And in the Visa model, when they take that hold on your credit card, who's sitting on that money? <laughs> okay. I'll leave that one for someone else to answer that one. Yeah, yeah. But, but just doing a credit reference lookup is clearly a much more palatable uh, the, you know, proposition than, than having someone take $1,000 off your card. Well, and that was the bit that I kind of really thought was very ingenious in the sense that here's a problem that's existed for a long time and Alipay solved it by saying, use this score yeah. as a method, don't worry about, don't worry about money taking out. money out. Now, again, you know, is it proliferate right across China? No, no but it's, it's definitely on the way because mm. it actually solves a major problem. But we're also, if I think about other innovation that we're actually doing as well, we've now got face pay capability. Mm-hmm. So KFC, where mm-hmm. you actually go and, and you have your photograph taken, that's then checked against a, a reference point, a, a repository of your um, mm-hmm. biometrics. At the moment, you still have to actually sign to actually authorise the transaction as well. But uh, you can imagine a, a time in the not-too-distant future where that actually just disappears mm. and you actually just use your face yep. to actually be able to pay. Now, this has got a lot of implications or applications, sorry, in places like workplaces. Mm-hmm. So you can actually just work in, walk in and you don't have a, a card that you actually have to tap mm-hmm. at a gate. Um, at a conference, for example, we piloted it at our conference in um I think it was in Shanghai just recently where all attendees actually had their photo taken and the way they went through the turnstiles to get in was actually showing their face. So it was proof that it actually was scalable. And a lot of conversations that I'm having with um, banks, I'm kind of suggesting that you could use this technology as a way of having a better experience for your customers so that they identify themselves as they walk in and then you can use whatever systems that you have in the background to then try and understand how you want to interact with them. So there's that kind of capability that's, um, that's coming through. And interestingly as well, Alibaba is investing in supermarkets and the offline commerce world as well. So where we see some hesitation around, or at least maybe not hesitation, it's not quite the right word, but um, but people are, are wondering how the retail environment is, is going to go. We're actually actively investing in that in China and creating new experiences. So supermarkets where you can come in and actually get the food cooked and try it and then get it delivered home or you can get it delivered home fresh and you're using different mechanisms to actually pay. There, there, there are no cashiers in the store, these sorts of things, are all concepts of what the future of payments 
uh, has been talked about for a long time and we're actually seeing that come into play in, in China. It's really interesting. You know, I think in the past, um, you know, retailers in Australia, when they wanted to look at sort of the future of retail, they got on a plane and went to Europe or across to America. Um, what you'd be suggesting is, is they perhaps should head over to Shanghai or Hangzhou? Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's funny, um, in my role at Visa, everyone was kind of saying, Let, let's go to Silicon Valley. And now, based on the fact that I'm now working for a Chinese company, but there's very, very strong demand mm. for people to go and see what's happening in, um, in, in China and in, in Hangzhou in particular. It's amazing because like that, the whole kind of terminal thing is being skipped in China and the card as well. It's just going straight now if I'm in a cab. They'll have a um, little QR code on a sticker that I essentially scan with my Alipay app. I've actually set up a telephone and a bank account. That's why in China, that's why I've actually got the ability to use Alipay. But I needed it because when I'm in China, either I carry a wad of cash or I'm kind of, you know, walking. Mm-hmm. So um, so I've spent, but, but what that actually means is that at the end of the day, there, there isn't a terminal in the cab, I'm not actually kind of interacting with the terminal. I'm either interacting with the cabbie's app or actually a, a static QR code. And the same thing's occurring in supermarkets and places like that. Now, a lot of them would have scan guns, so they're actually scanning my QR code to actually authenticate the transaction. Uh, and the vast majority of transactions in China are actually done that way. But equally, there's a number of smaller merchants where um, where you are just like interacting with, with them directly. And I, th- I find that quite fascinating. The other day I was there and, I mean, this has been in other markets as well, but they had a QR code on the table at the restaurant. And so you would then scan the QR code to actually order your goods and then the f- order your yep. food and then the food just arrived. So it's a, it's a fundamentally different way of interacting that we're actually seeing in China. Um, and I've been at a lot of uh, lunchtime meetings where the food has just arrived, where someone's actually ordered it through Alipay or some other app and paid for it and it just arrives. Mm. So, so this kind of concept of, of how the future of retail works is really unfolding in yeah. China. And that same sort of experience where you jump in an Uber and then you just get out and walk away, same for a restaurant. Exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's actually taking, as a lot of players would say, it's taking the friction out of that experience and mm. we're, we're definitely seeing that occur in China. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. So talking a little bit about Alipay and, and Ant Financial, what's the culture like? How would you compare the, the culture of, of Alipay and Ant Financial to sort of cultures you've, you've previously been exposed to at, at Visa and elsewhere in, in, in your career? I'd probably start up more by um, just the experiences I've had over the last seven months and then kind of go and talk about it because I don't speak Mandarin and I don't read Mandarin either. So my time in China has been a constant learning journey for me in terms of how simple things like how, how to actually get around because in, in Hangzhou, for example, a lot of the cabs don't speak English so I spend a lot of time showing them pictures of where I want to go or the Chinese equivalent of, of the name of the place I, I want to go to and they've all been very accommodating of that. But what it's really done to me is made me think a lot about cultures about you know my points of view on things and and funnily enough it made me think about when I was at school the kids from overseas who are in the class and realizing just how their experience must have been quite challenging in some ways as well so it's made me kind of personally reflect on a lot of things as well in terms of the work environment it's been fascinating because I'm getting emails that are coming out in in Mandarin constantly to me so I'm using Google Translate quite a lot to actually try and understand the gist of it and whether or not this is something I need to action or if it's something I can just park. But the culture in the organisation is fantastic. They definitely have a can-do mentality. The statements on the wall, you know, if not you, then who, if not now, when, these sorts of things are definitely showing 
the belief in the organisation that you can actually make a change. And when I've seen Jack speak about things, he's very passionate about having a mission, a passion, doing the right things and very, very supportive of small business and trying to enable that to grow globally. And that shows throughout the organisation. Yeah, I've actually, I've learnt more in the last seven months than um, in every dimension than I have in any other period of, of an equivalent time in my life. So it's been a lot of fun. Jack Maas, um, the, the material that I've read and, and seen his videos and his, his public speaking, he clearly is a inspiring uh, and, and somewhat unusual entrepreneur and visionary because you know, he began his journey you know, relatively late in life. It's really interesting to watch what Ant is doing and Alipay is doing and the sort of changes that are no doubt are going to come over the next decade. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, um, this story's been well told about how he learned to speak English, essentially taking tourists around, uh, and then his relationship with the Morleys in Australia, which is something that has meant that he's got a very, very soft spot for Australia, as evidenced by him providing a very generous donation to Newcastle University. And so I think he kind of talks openly about, you know, the struggles that he's had to get where he is. But you can see the passion and the insight and the vision in him, and he's really stuck at it to create a, a formidable organisation. It's certainly a very positive sort of face of, of Chinese entrepreneurship and sort of global entrepreneurship at that as well. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. You just see the opportunities that he has to talk around the world and the people who listen. I think it's very obvious that there's a lot for someone who's created an organisation like this to be able to participate and contribute. So previous to Alipay, you were with Visa, another great company. We talked briefly about a shared friend we had or colleague we had, Marco Lamartia, who we will no doubt have on Breaking Banks. So Marco, when you're listening to this, your time, your, your days are numbered. We will have you on Breaking Banks. I had the great pleasure of working with Marco at ANZ Bank, where he led some really exciting work. And he struck me as an example of a passionate, talented graduate at the time who's now gone on to do great things. And so I was very, very pleased to see that he worked for you. Without obviously talking too much about Marco, there's this, how do you groom talent? How do you find talent? How do you create opportunities for great talent to actually go somewhere? You know, in your career and my career, no doubt, we've both bumped into people who we thought had so much potential. And, and Marco is, is an example of one of those. How do you go looking for talent and, and how do you give them the runway to succeed? Yeah, I um, as, I, as I said before, I think there's um, probably half a dozen people in my career that I would go back to and hire without hesitation for, for any role because I know that no matter what challenge you gave them, they'd be able to, to actually achieve it and achieve it well. Um, and Marco definitely fits into that category from, from my perspective. What, I, what do I look for? I look for people who are resilient, people who have strong vision. But equally, I do understand, though, that there are people at different stages of their journey and then how can I kind of work out where they are and then help them move through that to the next stage and I often say to people when I start working with them that it's going to take me about six months to work that out because I need to observe them and understand what it is that they're actually doing and how they're performing on various activities and then I can actually go okay well this is the bit we actually need to work on here to take you through to the next step and um, and so I find then that backed up with kind of honest and frank conversations is the best thing at that point in time. So to be able to really call it the way it is and to say in a very kind and tactful way that this is the area that actually needs to be worked on and then continue to call it out until that is actually kind of resolved. There's a tendency for us to go recruiting for a particular job. Uh, and then to find someone who fits that job. And while that's that's necessary, uh, if you need a particular job done, 
There's also, I think, a, about a, it's a matchmaking process where you, you also look at the person and say, well, what role could they fulfill in my organisation? Because the job you need done today may not be the job you need done tomorrow. Maybe you know, the job changes. And so how do you find people who are sort of Swiss Army knife people who can morph themselves and change themselves and adapt to changing requirements? Yesterday I interviewed the folks at, at Alt, a very interesting sort of challenger bank here in Australia, early stage startup. Their recruitment policy was very much sort of hire people who are one degrees of separations of people we know we know or through our network and also don't hire dickheads don't hire people who are maybe competent jerks but just don't fit the corporate culture and in my own experience in hiring people it's a matchmaking process and sometimes creating a job for around their skills and their weaknesses so you know you don't have to be perfect at everything you just have to know yourself and know your strengths and know your weaknesses and then you find people who complement those weaknesses as well yeah I, I agree with a lot of that what I look for is capabilities in mm. people when I'm interviewing them so and how have you actually implemented that capability what have you done so a lot of behavioral questions can you tell me about something you did really well why why did you actually think that worked really well more than necessarily can you tell me exactly what you did in that job and then I can start to see whether or not these really are people that are going to have the capabilities that I actually need not necessarily the technical expertise because that is kind of trainable it's the capability bit that I'm particularly interested in as I said then I can kind of work with them from there I do say that one of the things though that um, most of people who've worked for me would say is that I'm very strong on kind of disciplined thinking so what is the rationale for your thinking and there I use the Minto pyramid principle as a way of actually essentially articulating arguments and thinking things through quite well. So I do spend a lot of time with my staff around how they should be adopting those sorts of principles into their thinking to clarify how they're communicating with people. When you're recruiting, to me, it's, it's very much about a conversation. Mm-hmm. And the sooner you can find out sort of people's strengths and weaknesses, you can then decide whether they fit your your organisation and whether you can work with those weaknesses as well as those strengths. So often the, the recruitment process, though, is drives people towards perhaps embellishing or, or not, not being completely candid and honest. Uh, and so the more you can sort of build a conversation and the more you can actually allow people to sort of talk about what their passions are and what their strengths are, and then you can also openly discuss where your, the weaknesses or, you know, they, they don't have a superpower in that area, the better you can actually sort of build out your teams as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's why I go back to the kind of capability conversations. Tell me when you did this, what was the biggest mistake you made, what's the biggest success you've had, Um, and then probing questions around that, I think you then get a a very strong understanding of the person. A lot of the areas that I've been working on, I I need people to be self-starters. I need them to take responsibility. Um, Adapt. Yeah, absolutely, and then just be incredibly resilient when you get a no. The question is, well, okay, why am I getting that no? Am I getting it consistently? Okay, do I need to change how I'm saying something? what I'm saying, do I need to change the product, like what, what do I need to do to actually turn that no into a yes. So people who think through those sorts of things, you know, rather than just taking no for an answer. And th- those sorts of skills, I think, are increasingly in demand. How much of the of the culture of, of Ant Financial and Alipay is influenced by the approach that uh, Jack Ma takes? Oh, ex- extraordinary, extraordinary amount. His whole vision, passion, all of it just is very pervasive throughout the organisation. Um, you know, that's not to say that he's there in every decision that's being made, but but definitely people think about it from the perspective of, you know, how would Jack think about this? So the CEO at the top of, a, of an organisation, particularly a financial services organisation, 
does have a significant role in your mind beyond just the sort of operations in terms of uh, they have a significant role in the in, in the culture and their sort of tone at the top. You think that's a critical element? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think without that, then um, then that you, you're directionless essentially. So I think being able to actually articulate that clearly, consistently, show compassion around that, and that's genuinely what I heard Jack talk about, not just for the employees, but for the company and the world at the recent Alibaba party we had. When you hear him talk about it, you're going like, wow, it's, it's coming from the heart. It's stuff that's coming from the heart. When you, when you think about sort of competitive advantage, people typically fall back to product and price and, and maybe customer experience. In your thinking, competitive advantage also can quite clearly come from the culture and from the tone at the top and from the way that organisation conducts itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's I think that's true. I mean, when we um, we definitely have competitive advantages from a product perspective. So if you think about the Alibaba assets and our ability to get businesses in Australia and New Zealand to actually want to sell to Chinese consumers, that kind of element's a no-brainer. But the ability for then to have an overlay on top of that, where it's got direction from the top and passion, I, I definitely think that's the case. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us uh, today at uh, Breaking Banks, and it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate thank you. It. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you to everyone who's been following B-Banks Asia on Twitter and subscribe to the newsletters and podcasts. If you know someone who you'd like me to interview, let me know. You can message me on Twitter or email me at simon at breakingbanks.com. I love feedback. Uh, it's a bit rough in places, I know. And sometimes uh, the recording quality as I learn how to use this gear around me is uh, a little bit dodgy at times and I apologise. But I'll endeavour to compensate in quality interviews with some of the region's most interesting thought leaders and change makers. So thank you for listening and I look forward to hearing from you and talking again next week.